we've had certain shurim basically dealing with the psychological phenomena that occurs in man and how do we understand it in terms of hashkofa and uh, until now I've given five shurim on that I'm now continuing uh, in the same idea until we fi- f- fully develop the, the, the idea and what I'm going to try to talk about this time is a further development very necessary development of some of the ideas of the Yitzhahara, the Sitra Akhra. Now, last week, just to uh, just to summarize of what we covered until now, in terms of the Yitzhahara and Yitzhahara, very briefly, what we see until now is the Yitzhahara itself, if you recall, is that urge or that drive in a person which is the desire to live in accordance with reality or with truth. There's a certain urge that a person has that he wants to live in accordance with the truth that he perceives. I'm not going to explain it because I had done that you know, in the previous year. Just, just to summarize. Now, therefore, a person has a desire to know truth because he wants to live in accordance with that truth and he has a desire to know valued truth. There are many truths. But what does he want to live his life in accordance with? That which obviously has value, meaning. This is what he wants to give himself priority to. So therefore, the desire, the drive that a person has to live in accordance with value, truth, is the Yitzhah And of course, as part of that, the person has the desire to know value, truth. This is a tremendously powerful urge. And we see it as beginning with the onset of adolescence, which I had mentioned previously. Now, this is basically the ideas of the Yitzhah The Yitzhah however, is different, obviously. It's a Yitzhah, it's an inclination that wants to put man going in the other direction, another direction. But what is that? The Yitzhah provide, or rather, manifests himself in the sense that he gives urges to man needs and drives, in other words, urges to a person. And a person is margish, or feels these urges. What kind of urges are these? I had mentioned four. I showed that the Torah mentions these urges. First of all, there's the urge for pleasure, the urge for productivity, the urge for power, and the urge for a feeling of potency. When a person has an urge for pleasure and it's fulfilled, of course he gains that sense of pleasure. When a person has an urge for productivity, then when he does become productive, he gains a sense of achievement. When a person has the sense or the urge for power, then of course if he exercises power, he gains a sense of control or mastery. And when a person exercises or fulfills the urge of potency, he gains the sense of ability to do anything. Those four urges and the different responses are a product of the Yitzhahara. Now, the idea of these things, the idea of these urges eventually lead a person, the idea of these urges and their fulfillment gives a person a sense of being, a sense of worth. And as a result of that, as a result of the sense of worth, then a person achieves what's called a belief of being. 
because you feel like somebody you therefore believe you're somebody so therefore the what the Yetzirah wants you to do is he gives you these urges and these feelings that these responses to these urges he gives you the feeling of being so that eventually you should arrive at the false conclusion that you are something or that cognitive idea that belief of being is what the Sahara wants you to arrive at and he does you by giving you these urges and the feelings that result from the fulfillment and he gives you the feeling of being or self-worth that sense of being and you arrive at this conclusion that conclusion of Yeshu Ibn Vadai is what the Sahara wants now, that was a review of what the Yetzirah is, in essence. Now, but the Yetzirah, if you recall, which is the drive or the urge for a person to live in accordance with value, truth that he perceives, it brings you in another direction, also, ultimately, for a sense of worth. But it's the opposite direction. There, what happens is that, as a result of truth, you begin to become aware, and I'll go into this later, you arrive at the conclusion of what's called Torah Navoida. Torah gives you the hasaga or the realization or comprehension of Enei the idea of the unity of the Rabbani Shalom. And the Avoida is nothing more than the, than the translation of the belief of Enei into action. That's what the Avoida is in terms of the mitzvahs, both in the content and the form of the mitzvahs. But the mitzvahs are nothing more than a translation into human behavior of the idea of Now, when a person feels that, and that's what he derives, the Hasag of and the Avoida, which is the mitzvah in terms of the content tzura, which testifies to Einoidmovadoy, you develop the feeling of Einoidmovadoy, which immediately brings you into a desire to be with the Rabbani Shlom, and it brings you into a sense of intimacy with the Rabbani Shlom. That sense of intimacy with the Rebbe gives you a tremendous feeling of being because the being that you're experiencing is really the Rebbe being and that is the only sense of being you can really accomplish. So therefore, we come out that the Yetzer and Yetzer Toiv are nothing more than two different forces compelling you in two different directions to achieve some sense of being. The Yetzer Horror tries to get you to achieve the sense of being by giving you urges and you fulfilling those urges and then you get this feeling of being so therefore you arrive at the conclusion of being this illusion of Yeshe Nervadoi or Yeshus and the Yetzatev gets you into the other direction that you realize through Teren as a result of the fact that you're after truth you realize Enid Nervadoi you feel Enid Nervadoi and that ultimately leads you into the feeling of a sense of being by realizing anus in the sense that you are nothing. So therefore you have Yetzirah and Yetzirah opposing each other, each one contesting themselves for what you want to do and that's achieving some sense of worth and each one accomplishing it in the different directions. Now, this is the idea of a short review of what we had covered previously. Now, what I want to go on today is a further elaboration of very crucial and important elaboration of the armaments of the Yetzirah because the truth is that Yetzirah is really very weak even though it sounds very strange because everybody's running after the Yetzirah 
rather running in the in the direction of the Yitzhara. The truth is, the Yitzhara is a very weak kind of being. Connected the Yitzhara, the Yitzhara cannot last. So what the Rabbani Shalom has to do is help out the Yitzhara. So what he has done is he's provided several more components to the structure, which have profound implications in the psychology of man, as we shall see. And this is all to help the Yitzhara. Because without it, he would, without it, the human being would make very short work of him. But of course we have to understand this. So this is what I want to go into. The further structure or the further components of the Yitzhara itself. And how he's able to do his job. And before I begin that, let me ask certain questions. Which is always a good way to dramatize uh, the principles upon which one, uh, which one tries to understand. Let me ask you several questions, and then of course later on, after we understand the principles, the question, the answers will become very obvious. It says, there's a postic that says in Kriyashma, in the Pasha of Tzitzis, Thou shalt not go after, pursue, you shall not go after the, uh, the heart, after your heart, obviously means the inclinations of the heart, and after your eyes. And don't go after your eyes. Now, when you look at that Pasek, really two different questions you can ask. Chazal say, Chazal say that, Chazal say, do not go after your heart. What is that? Zuminus. This is apostasy, apicorsis, heresy. Okay? Atheism, whatever. Don't, that's what it means, do not go after your eyes. What's that? That's nus, immorality. Okay. Now, I can understand going after your eyes means immorality. That's understood. But what does it mean? Do not go after your. Do not go after avoid zoro, apostasy, heresy, which means achri levavkam. That doesn't make sense. If a person is an apicurus, it's because there's an intellectual deficiency. He reasoned wrong. Knows he, the way the world looks to him, right? This is the way he perceives reality. And if his conclusion is either that there's no Rebbe Shalom, or there are many gods, or whatever, then, okay, I mean, like, what, what does that have to do with the the heart? It's a product of the errors of the mind. It really should say, It shouldn't say that. It really should say, If your minds, your brains... Daitchem, your 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 eyes, or your your uh, knowledge, or das, or reasoning, whatever. <clears throat> Why does it say after your heart? It means if you go after your heart, you wind up being an apicurus or an overdevotee. What does one have to do with the other? It's a fallacy in the mind. It has nothing to do with the heart. That's the first question. Second question is it doesn't make sense. It says don't go after your heart and then after your eyes. Let me ask you something. When you want to do something, first you see it, and then you want it, correct? How do you know what you want? First you see, and then you want what you see, right? You go to a department store, right? And you see a beautiful dress, since I'm addressing women here, right? First you see it, and then you desire it, right? So it should say, thou shalt not go after your eyes, and then after your heart. Because first you have eyes, and then you lead to the conclusion of the heart. Why does it say the reverse? Don't go after your heart, and then go after your eyes. Because the way experience happens, it's obviously the reverse. Now, 
the first question is asked by Rebbe Chonim Vasiman, and the second question is asked by the Chafetz Chaim. But they're two very profound questions, very good questions. What's really going on here? Second question is that the the, the Ramam says that it's a mitzvah say. It's a mitzvah to know and to believe in God. That's what the Ramam says. Now, there are many difficulties with this. One difficulty is what I want to address myself to. It just doesn't make sense. I can understand if the Rebbeinu says, uh, let's say, put on film. Good. So therefore, you either put on film or you don't put on film. There's an act to be done. There's a conflict to be had, right? You either put it on or you don't put it on, or whatever. Eat trefus, not eat trefus, or whatever. But what do you mean God commands you to believe in Him? What does that mean? I mean, either you believe in Him or you don't believe in Him. What are you supposed to search after? What are you supposed to strive? Either you believe in the Rabbi Islam or you don't believe in the Rabbi Islam. What does it mean that God commands you as if there's a conflict? Should I believe in God or should I not believe in God? What does that mean? A lot depends on the environment you're brought up in, what experiences you've gone through. I mean, it's, not a, it's, a, a, it's really by chance, to a great extent, what parents you're born with. But what do you mean the Rabbi Islam is Matsav you to believe in Him? What are you supposed to do? What's the conflict? What are you supposed to strive for? How is that a commandment? How do you fulfill the commandment? Either you believe in him or you don't believe in him. If a person does not believe in God, so he's supposed to believe in God because God commanded him? Besides the fact that how can you believe in the commandment if you don't believe in the being that self-commanded? And that itself is a question that doesn't make sense. But putting that aside, what's he supposed to do if he doesn't believe in God? I mean, he's supposed to believe in God. I mean, how? So the correct question is like, what is the meaning of that mitzvah? A third question is, wait a minute, if it's a mitzvah to believe in God, then it's something that doesn't make sense. Because the mitzvahs apply to a girl who's 12 and a boy who's 13, correct? That means it's a mitzvah for a boy of 13 to believe in God. But wait a minute, how can we ask a child to believe in the Rebbeinu Shalom, to understand the Rebbeinu Shalom or whatever? There are the greatest minds of all time, Aristotle, Leibniz, Gauss, I mean, these people have made mistakes in their understanding and belief in the Rabbi Islam. So who are we talking to, a 13-year-old kid to believe in the Rabbi Islam? Has the Rabbi Islam asked something of a bar mitzvah kid, right? To do something which the greatest minds of all time, continuously, are making mistakes all the time. And not only that, most of mankind makes a mistake in their belief of the Rabbi Islam. So what do you want from a 13-year-old kid? What does that mean? Another kasha is, what do you want from the average guy? The average guy is brought up in a household, right, that usually professes some kind of religion or professes some kind of belief, even if they don't believe in the Rabbani Islam, right? That's the average household. So if the average guy who's brought up in that household obviously follows that household. Not only that, the whole society has values that a person follows. What do you expect of a person really if he's brought up in a society, really, that's connected many of the beliefs that he's supposed to believe in. He's supposed to believe in the Rabbani Shalom, he's supposed to believe in Sheva Mitzvahs, the Seven Commandments. So, I mean, what do you want from the guy? That's really, what can you really ask from him? How could you give a person an Einish if he doesn't believe? What really goes on? And not only that, we find that by that Kfira, atheism, is worse than belief in another God idolatry. It's much worse. 
because the halacha of atheism is that you could be uh, you can actually almost uh, uh, do away with a person who's a min whereas by the idea of a uh, person who's over a zara you have to judge him you have to bring witnesses and so on the Torah halachically treats an atheist much worse than it treats an idol uh, person who worships idols so again the idea what do you want from this person really these questions really are very good questions and they really have to be understood in order to try to answer some of these questions or you know try to answer the questions we have to begin to understand a fundamental idea and that is that the Yetzirah really has far greater powers in the sense of his ability to move you in his direction than Yetzirah okay which means that it's much more difficult to do a chet or to do to come to the belief that you are somebody Yeshed Mavadi and so then it is uh, much more difficult than it is to come to the belief of Enoid Mavadi I will explain uh, this is the first idea that I want to present now the question of course is how and why and then if that is true then how does the Yetzirah counteract that let's take a look <coughs> The Torah expects, or the Torah's expectations of your belief does not emanate necessarily from a revelation. The truth is that if a person born as a grown-up, if a person was born as an adult, and he had full capabilities of his mind, he would reach the conclusion very shortly that there is a God, and he would begin searching for the rotten of that God. He would reach that conclusion by himself, without any revelation whatsoever that there is such a being and that this being expects something of him and he would begin searching for the, what is the rotten of that being the question is how and why doesn't he reach now now the idea is that first let's understand how does a person reach that conclusion and then understand what goes wrong why are people not experiencing that today but let's first take things in a pure sense now what the Rebbein Shalom did is he created a Bria which testifies to his existence merely by his acts. We find that in the Medish by Rabbi Akiva. A Min once walked over to Rabbi Akiva, and I'm curious, a person who doesn't, uh, who doesn't believe in God. He walked over to Rabbi Akiva. This is what the Medish says. He walked over to Rabbi Akiva and he asked him, show me that there's a Rebbein Shalom. Prove it to me. Indicate to me in some way that there is a Rebbein Shalom. Demonstrated. What Rabbi, so Rabbi Akiva turned to him and said, Who made your garment? So the man said, A weaver. So Rabbi Akiva said to him, Prove it to me. Prove it to me that a weaver made your garment. I don't believe you. Of course, the person knows the weaver because he probably picked it up from the man. Or he saw him weaving it. But how does, how does this person now going to prove to another person who was not there while the garment was being made? How do you prove it to such a person? So the Min said, what do you mean? The garment testifies to the fact that it was made. And what was the Min saying? Because he recognized the idea that when you look at something, any object, which has a function, and it's complex, then you immediately know that it had to have been designed, put together by some independent, or rather some intelligent mind. 
So therefore he said that the, obviously the garment testifies to a weaver. So Rabbi Akiva then answered him that the universe testifies to the Rabbi Just like a house testifies to a builder, okay, a garment testifies to a weaver, a, a door or whatever testifies to a carpenter, the universe testifies to a builder. What was Rabbi Akiva saying? And remember, it's a medrash, it's a chazal. Rabbi Akiva was saying what's known as the proof by design. But Rabbi Akiva held that it's poshet. The answer was so obvious and simple that he didn't have to prove in any other way the existence of the Rabbani Shalom. What is the proof by design? Which is a famous proof in philosophy. And I just want to talk about it a little. When you look at something which can serve a function, okay, then the question is, how complex is that object that serves the function? For instance, let's say you have a piece of paper on a table and you want to keep it down from the wind from blowing it. So you take a rock and you put it on, right? So that rock is a device that's enabling you to hold that paper on the table, correct? The wind shouldn't blow it away. But how complex is that rock? Not complex at all. It does it by its weight. Okay. That's one object. What happens if you walk and you see a device which is very complex and it performs a function, but it does that because it has a tremendous amount of components in it that interact exactly. It has the right amount of components, each one interacting exactly the right way, and as a result of that, it does a specified function. Then the person automatically says that this could not come about by chance. In other words, what we see in front of us, millions of different mechanisms or devices which operate and perform a function. So the question arises in your mind, who put all this here? Who put these complex devices or mechanisms that have a myriad amount of components in them, each the exact amount of components, the right components, the kind, the type, and they interact in the, in the, the exact way in order to perform a certain function? Who did that? Well, there's only one of two choices. Either the chance, the laws of chance, whatever that is, probability, the random, the random interactions of physical forces that go on in the universe, or an intelligent mind put it together. Now, anybody looking at that would know or feel immediately that the probability of a complex device arriving by chance is almost impossible. Now, it's like the famous example, if you were walking, for instance, in a desert, and you came upon the World Trade Center, just standing there in the middle of the Sahara, this incredibly big building, and you walk in and it has all these different rooms and everything, the, the plumbing system, the electrical system, everything was just perfectly there, and you looked at it, you would never say that it just happened there by chance because of all the physical forces occurring. Obviously, what put it there was a design. You know, it's the design, the complex design of an object. When a, uh, an object functions as a result of a complex design, that itself indicates that there must be a maker of it. It cannot have come about by the alternative called chance. It's impossible. Now, obviously, when you're referring to the universe, you're not referring to one device. You're referring to an almost an infinite variety of different mechanisms. You're referring to the entire human body, which is a, an incredible mechanism, the different parts of the human brain, and so on. You're referring to plants and organisms and millions of different species of animals, and so on. 
You're looking at a universe that has billions of different complex mechanisms, each one performing a certain function. And not only that, but each one integrating or interacting with each other in such a way where all their survival is ensured, which is ecology. Now, so you look at that and you say, well, it couldn't have come about by chance. So you arrive at the conclusion that there must be a maker. That's the same idea. When you look at a garment and you see that it fits the individual who's wearing it, that's exactly designed where there's a sleeve for the arms and for the legs and uh, places for the legs and so on, that it closes here and it, it allows freedom of movement, it allows a person to keep warm and so on, that you see that that garment is functional in a very complex way. You know immediately that it doesn't come about by chance. That was Rabbi Akiva's answer to that men. That just by looking at the universe, merely with the mind, one immediately reaches a conclusion that there must be a maker, a creator, or somebody who put everything into place. This is what Rabbi Akiva answered that men. That's the proof of design, which is a famous proof. So we see therefore that the proof of design which was used for Rabbi Akiva, is sufficient to Rabbi Akiva. There's nothing else that you have to know. That is made on a creator. Now, we don't know necessarily what kind of creator is, but we know from the, from, we know from the product that the creator has an incredible intelligence. For a mind to make all this, and to be able to have all these different life forms and forces in the universe interacting in such a way where everything has a kiyom and so on, and functions perfectly, <clears throat> of course, means that the creator, whoever made this, has an IQ numbering in the millions, obviously. Now, that idea is such a profound or simple idea, rather, that anybody who would, would be born and would have his full intellectual capacities would immediately perceive that. There's nothing else. There's no other conclusion a person would reach. And this is one of the ways Avram Avino reached that conclusion. Now, when you look at the Bria, and you see, or rather, you reach the conclusion that there's a creator, you reach a second conclusion. And the second conclusion is that since everything in the universe has a function, okay, so we assume that the object was designed for that function, so therefore you look at your own self and you assume that since you were made too, you also have a function or a purpose. Because why would a creator make everything else with a function, a purpose, and you purposeless? doesn't make sense. So we assume that you also have a purpose. In addition, another idea that you begin to assume is that when a person, usually when a person makes an object, it's always in benefit for the self, the person who made it, in order to do what he wants. So therefore, the conclusion is that if you make an object, or rather if if there's a creator of the universe who made the objects, then what he, his, he has a will or he has an intended desire for this individual to go in. So therefore, one reaches the conclusion that A, there is a creator, two, that the creator has a purpose, and the purpose is in accordance with the creator's desire. Now the person begins searching, what is that purpose, and so on. So it comes out that a person who would use his mind completely and not obstructed by any other things which will tend to blind the individual, he would reach this conclusion. 
And that's the Chazal of Rabbi Akiva. And the truth is that is the strongest, or rather that is the strongest proof for the existence of the Rabbani Shalom. Maybe the complexity of the universe itself is made on the Rabbani Shalom without any doubt whatsoever. Now, there are very many philosophers who counter the proof by design. But I don't want to get into that because that's a, that's a whole different schmooze in itself. But from Chazal we see that that proof is sufficient. Now, if that's the case, if the Yetzatev, if you recall, if the Yetzatev is the urge of an individual to seek truth, value truth, and therefore to live in accordance with that truth, then the truth that that person is going to dis- uh, 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 perceive is what? Is this proof or this idea of a creator who has created you for whatever purpose and whatever his will is. That's the conclusion you're going to reach. <clears throat> now, that is such a powerful urge that the truth is that the horror is very weak compared to that. A person's desire for truth or the ability to and the ability to perceive truth because of his mind is so powerful that the Yitzhah really has a very poor chance of succeeding in fooling a person where a person will negate the truth, the value truth but, so therefore what the Rebbe does is he adds the kirkus of the Sahara. he gives it more abilities by creating different phenomena what are the phenomena that the Rebbe gives the Sahara in order to counterbalance the strength of the Yitzhah in other words the fact that an individual has a mind, an intellect, and the intellect of an individual is nothing more than the mechanism for perceiving truth or reality. The fact that a person has an intellect or the mechanism for perceiving truth, and the fact that he has an urge to perceive truth, will automatically bring him in that direction. He will perceive the truth, the value truth, and he's going to live in accordance with that. So the eights are, of course, Connect uh, that really is very weak, as I mentioned. So what the Rabbani Shalom does is he aids him in three directions. First, he gives him the ability to control the body, in the sense that the Eitzahara can generate urges in the individual. In other words, he gives you needs and drives. He gives you an urge, which you experience. He also the Eitzahara as part of what he can. Uh, control your body and the Yitzhar has shlita over the guf that's his domain besides the urges you get a sense of fulfillment of those urges and the sense of self-worth that you feel after you fulfill those urges he has that very good but that in itself is still not strong enough to counter the Yitzhara why? because a person is put into two different directions one direction is is that he experiences a lot of urges and he wants to fulfill those urges correct he wants to fulfill an urge a person is very hungry and he wants to eat because he wants to eat right he has that urge a person he has that on one side but on the other side there's the truth of what reality is all about and what to do really with that urge to subjugate the urge so the truth is he's in a bind but the truth of the situation is so obvious that he won't listen to the urge so what the Rebbe Shalom does is he must give the Yitzhahara another device in order to combat the Yitzhahara the Yitzhahara what is that? 
What he gives the individual is the device called, in technical terms, a defense mechanism. Or, he gives the individual a method for deception. The person has to be able to suspend his perception of reality in order to engage in fulfillment of the urge. Notice the reversion gives the individual the wherewithal, the ability to suspend reality perception, not to look at reality. Once a person does not look at reality, then he can immediately go and fulfill the urge. If a person did not have that ability to, to suspend his understanding of reality, to deceive himself, that's a koyach that another man has, he could not deceive himself. Therefore, he could not go after the urge because the truth would be too obvious. So therefore, what the Rabbanu has done is given the mind the ability to deceive itself. He has given the individual the ability to deceive itself, which means that the aspect of the mind which perceives reality, a person can suspend that or uh, make that uh, function of the self non-functioning. Okay, that's the general idea. As a result of the fact that the individual can deceive himself, he now can partake of himself of all the urges. But again, remember, if a person could not fool himself, if he could not hide reality, he could not go after the Eight Sahara. So the creation of the idea called the deception of reality is needed in order to give the Eight Sahara a fighting chance. It could not win over the Eight Sahara. Now, I'll explain more of that, but I'm just giving you a general idea. But wait a minute, that's still not enough for the Eight Sahara. He still cannot vanquish. Even if you are able to fool yourself, and therefore you now want to go after your urges, you still would not be able to do it. Because thought, there's got to be an ability to fool yourself in reality, not only the ability in the mind to fool yourself. Reality has to be such where there can be errors made in reality. There has to be a toss, a mistake in reality. There has to be the ability to perceive an error, or reality has to present itself in such a way where one can make a mistake in reality. Then you could fool yourself, and then you can go after the urge. Well, and I'm going to explain each of these ideas. And each of these ideas gives rise to different phenomena in the world and different phenomena in the psyche of an individual. Let me go back and explain what is meant by a person's ability to deceive himself. And for that you really have to have a certain basic fundamental understanding of certain psychological phenomena. Now, it's very important to understand that we have the notion of self. Now, self means you, the people I'm addressing myself to. Now, self is synonymous with I, ego, or whatever you want to refer to it as. But that's, you are listening to the sheer, that's the self. And one of the notions that psychologists understand about self, which is a true notion, is that all people, all selves, all egos or eyes, have functions. You do things. The mind does things. Okay, it has certain functions. Obviously, if it has certain functions, you have the mechanisms, the devices by which you can do these things. Now, I'm going to list nine different functions that the person does, just to give you some background in terms of understanding what is meant by the term ego function. 
in terms of what the person does. The first idea, the first function that the mind does, or the self, or the person, whatever, you, however, whatever term you want to refer to it as, is thinking. You think, means you arrange your ideas, you understand, you reason, you arrange ideas in a logical way, in your mind, and you're obviously able to talk to people. Now talking is nothing more than the verbal manifestation of what you're thinking. So if you're thinking, is all mixed up, your talking is going to be mixed up too. So we can see how you think by the way you talk. So, thinking is one of the functions of the self. Now, the way the person thinks, of course, is what's called the intellect. Every individual has what's called a seichel, an intellect. The intellect is that aspect of the mind, which of course is located in the brain, that is able to reason, understand, conceptualize. So everybody has what's called an intellect, which is merely the instrument which enables the self to understand. It's so important to understand the difference. A self is not the intellect. It's like you have a computer that enables you to figure out problems. Self is that I of the individual that needs certain things, instruments, to get things done. If you do not have a, uh, an intellect or that aspect of the mind that enables you to think, you cannot think. You can think if you're out of the body, because the neshama can think automatically much far greater than the human mind if you're not rooted to the body. Once the Rabbani Shalom tied you into a body, it means the significance of that is that the neshama can perform almost nothing of what it could perform out of the body. The only way it can perform it is if it has the proper mechanism in the human body itself. So the Rabbani Shalom took this neshama, tied it to the body, and made it dependent on whatever things in the body. So if, the, if in that body there's a mind, there's an intellect, then the neshama can reason. Or you, yourself, the self can figure out things. If you are, however, put into a, an object which has no intellect, if the neshama, for instance, is put into a stone, then the neshama, or let's say in a lower form, it cannot reason in that sense because it doesn't have the capacity, it doesn't have the mechanism to do that. So therefore, one of the things that the self can do the ego can do is to reason because it has the device, the instrument called the intellect. So thinking is one of the functions of the ego because it has the mechanism, the intellect. Another function is memory. You obviously can recall different things that happened because you remember. Memory is a function of ego because you have the mechanism for memory which lies obviously in the human brain. A third function is perception. You are able to perceive the outside world they bombard your five senses and you have a, an interpretation of that in your mind and that's how you see the outside world so therefore perception is one of the abilities of the ego, the self in that it can perceive the outside world via the senses another uh, function of the ego is emotion, feeling, affect you're able to feel, you can be margish you actually can feel things anger, uh, pity, whatever but the ability to feel is a function of the ego. The self can feel. Another function of the ego is, is uh, the ability to move. You can move about. You can walk, locomotion, whatever, because the human body obviously has the wherewithal to do that, so therefore the mind can use that body to get these things done. So another function of the ego of called, is called motor development, or the ability to move about. A sixth function of the ego 
which is very crucial, is the ability to perceive reality. It's called reality testing. It's the ability to correctly perceive and interpret what you receive correctly. This is the ability that the ego has. You can make sense of what's out there. In other words, you can actually understand truth. If you did not have the ability to perceive reality, you would never know truth. You'd never know what's out there. So therefore, the, re, uh, the ability of the ego to perceive reality is a function of ego, and it's called reality testing, or the ability to test and actually come up with a correct interpretation of what reality or truth is all about. A seventh function of the ego is impulse control, that you can actually, if you, let's say all of a sudden you have an aggressive desire, somebody gave you an insult and you feel like punching that person in the mouth, you can sit on top of that impulse, you can control that impulse, because the ego is able to control its impulses. If you didn't, everybody would be in an awful lot of trouble because everybody's got all different kinds of aggressive, sexual kinds of impulses and so on. So the ego or the self can sit on top of that and control it. That's a function of the self or the ego. So impulse control is another function. Another function is called judgment. You are able to perceive correctly the consequences of your actions. You know that if you do something, if you steal for instance, you know that it's very likely that you, it's possible that you may get caught and sent to jail or whatever. That's judgment. You actually can perceive the consequences of your actions. Another function and the last function of ego is called defense. And that is the one I want to zero in on. And the whole reason why I gave it the previous eight is to give you the feel that the ego has functions. But of course the real function that I'm going to talk about is the function called defense. And that has profound implications for our shkofa, as we will see. Since, however, there isn't sufficient time to fully explain the concept of defense mechanisms and their important applications to our shkofa, we will have to cover them next week. The question is, what is meant by the ego function of defense? Defense against what? What is it going to defend against? Well. The answer to that is that throughout life, people will find themselves in consciously intolerable situations. There are many situations that you will find yourself in that you don't want to look at, you don't want to recognize. Because if you do, it's very painful to you. It's what's called a consciously intolerable situation. So therefore, the self has to protect itself against the feelings of pain or fear that it will experience in different situations. So therefore, it has what's called a defense mechanism. In other words, the self or the ego is able to employ a certain mechanism called defense mechanism, and it's able to do away or somehow avoid the painful feelings of fear, anxiety, anger, whatever, that come from certain situations. And our ninth function which I'm describing is called the ego defense mechanism, and it's, the ego has a mechanism or a device whereby it's able to defend itself against terrible kind of feelings which it's experiencing as a result of the fact that it's in a reality which is very threatening or whatever. Now, let me be more concrete and give you a, a specific case and then we'll try to understand exactly how this operates. Let's take an individual who's brought up among parents and these parents are very rejecting, very cruel, very hostile toward the child which you find, especially today, you have a lot of child abuse or whatever. And um, now this child is growing up in that family. Now as a result of this very abusive behavior, 
on the part of the parents toward the child, this child begins developing certain feelings. Not good feelings, very painful feelings. First of all, it begins developing a tremendous sense of inferiority. Because children don't say that they are right and their parents are wrong. They tend to say the parents are right and they are wrong. So therefore, if the parents are right and the parents are rejecting them, what must it mean? It must mean that the child is an inferior quality, and that's why they're rejecting it. So therefore, the child immediately has a terrible sense of self-esteem. Very poor self-respect, self-esteem, self-worth. It has a tremendous feeling of inferiority. Because again, it says that the parents are right and not it. Another feeling that the child feels, of course, is insecurity. If the parents are rejecting the child, then it's a ma only a matter of time the child feels that the parents may throw this kid out if it does something really wrong. Because it, 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 the child knows that it's only there temporarily, so to speak, because it's always being rejected. So it has this terrible feeling of insecurity that's going to be thrown out of the house. Now, of course, the child doesn't know that the parents are not going to throw it out of the house, at least most of the time anyway. But the fantasy that it may be thrown out of the house because of its real rejection is a very valid one for the child. So the child feels tremendous amounts of insecurity. In addition to that, the child feels a tremendous amount of anger because a child needs love, confidence, a certain sense of intimacy and being wanted by parents. If it doesn't get those kind of needs, it has a tremendous sense of frustration. When a person is frustrated, the person gets angry. <coughs> and the child has a tremendous amount of anger toward the parents. Now that anger leads the child into fantasizing certain things about the parents. And what's very common in this situation is that the child has fantasies of death against the parents. The child wishes the parents dead because of the terrible abuse it's receiving. Now, each of these three feelings, inferiority, insecurity, and anger, are very dangerous emotions. Because what they produce in the child is tremendous fear. If the child is nothing, it's very inferior if it's insecure when the child immediately feels anxiety because if you're going to be thrown out of your house how are you going to survive if you are inferior it means you're not going to make it in this world so what's tapped is the tremendous self-preservation instinct which a child every person has and since it has these feelings of inferiority and insecurity it feels very threatened and therefore it has a tremendous sense of fear which it, the child is always feeling in addition, it has tremendous fear that it's angry at the parent because the child feels that somehow the parent is going to find out that it's angry and is going to seek retribution, retaliation, and then really throw the kid out. So therefore, this child does not want to feel these ongoing constant feelings of what? Of inferiority, insecurity, and anger. So what does the child do? So the child is stuck. This is a case which I want to present. Now, what does this particular child do? All, every human being has the ability to negate or somehow remove these terrible feelings which is experiencing as a result of the parental rejection. How does it do this? How does that device work? If you recall, I said that the ego has a function called defense mechanism. What does that mean? It means that the mind looks out at the real world, and I'm sort of like being dramatic about it, and says, look, I cannot tolerate these feelings of fear, inferiority, insecurity, anger, tremendous fear all the time. If I don't stop these feelings, I'm going to go crazy, literally. Not only that, 
if you're always in a constant state of fear, how productive are you with your life? Not very. If you're in the middle of a war, you can't do anything like doing constructive things. Everything stops. The immediate task is to survive. The same thing. If a child is under the war of psychological fear, everything stops. The kid doesn't learn, the kid doesn't eat, the kid doesn't sleep, nothing. The kid uh, becomes depressed or whatever. Everything stops. The kid becomes withdrawn. Why? Because the child is tremendously at war. What is the war? It's at war with itself. It's got a bunch of feelings that it doesn't want to feel, and it's going to sit on top of that. That's the war. So the self looks at itself and says, I've got to get rid of these feelings. If I don't, I'll never last. I'll never make it. I'll never do anything. What does it do? So the individual has what's called a defense mechanism. And what is that? The self says, wait a minute. You know, if I can somehow affect my memory, what is memory? Memory is the ability to recall what's going on, right? So the self says, the ego says, if I can somehow affect my memory and make believe and sit on top of that memory and not remember this terrible situation, lo and behold, I won't feel this anymore because I don't remember what you're talking about. So what the ego does is the ego has the ability of taking all these feelings and pushing it out of consciousness or beyond awareness. And of course, that which I am not aware of, I obviously don't. If I am not aware of my feelings of insecurity, inferiority, and anger, I don't feel any fear. Because I can only feel fear if I am conscious of these feelings. If the ego can somehow throw these feelings right out of the mind, then it doesn't feel fear anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? So therefore, the ego looks around and says, you know what, I'm going to disturb memory. I'm going to sit on top of the memory and block that out. And I'm not going to remember all these feelings of inferiority, insecurity, and um, anger. I'm not going to remember this. I'm not going to remember, means it's out of conscious awareness. Bam, I can now go about doing what I always have to do. I can now maintain a productive life. You see? That's the whole idea of it. So therefore, the, the ego sits on top of the memory or it disturbs its own function of memory in order to push it out of conscious awareness and it now can function much better. That idea or that ability to push something beyond awareness is what's called repression. It's able to repress those ideas out of the mind and therefore the individual, the ego, feels nothing anymore. But how did it do it? It concealed the truth from itself. It sat on top of its memory, repressed it, and concealed the truth. Now I can keep on going. Now, that is one way the ego can help itself by concealing the truth. What happens if, wait, what happens if the energy or the anger and the fear, the sense of inadequacy is so strong that you just can't forget it because it has so much energy, energy to break into the conscious mind. What's going to happen then? Repression is not going to work. So what the ego does, it has a new way of working. Again, part of defense, but it has a, another backup system. And this is what's called, the f repression is called the primary defense because that's the first defense used. It takes whatever is in the mind and cannot tolerate and kicks it out by affecting its own memory. You tamper with your own memory, the mechanism of memory. The second way it does is by tampering with another mechanism, 
because repression is not working. There is so much energy for these terrible feelings that I just can't sit on top of them. Not only that, what happens if you come in and you've, let's say you have tremendous amount of anger which you're sitting on top of, right? And this kid is, gets, he's in school and some, some other kid walks over and starts slapping him around. And this kid's trying to deny all his anger. That crisis is going to stimulate that anger which he's hiding to come out. You see? So that crisis is stimulating the anger which he's trying to sit on top of to come out. So it's going to break right through the repression and come right into the conscious mind and it's going to be extremely anxiety-provoking because he doesn't want to experience anger. Because if he experiences anger, what immediately will become aware to him is why is he angry? Because of his parents. And then he's afraid of retaliation and so on. So therefore, this guy's got to be given this ego another form of defending itself. It's not enough just to stick or to go against repression. You've got to have some other secondary defense which is going to bolster the repression. So you know what it does? It looks around for some other ego function. I remember one of them was reality testing. It can perceive reality. And it says, ah, I'm going to distort reality. I'm going to make believe that there's a different kind of reality. So therefore, if there's a different kind of reality, then obviously I don't have to experience any of these feelings. So what's this kid going to do? What's the specific case? The individual who has these feelings of inferiority, insecurity and tremendous anger. What's he going to do? Especially with his anger. What's he going to do with it? I'll tell you what he's going to do. He'll use another defense mechanism besides repression. Repression was the first defense mechanism, which is forgetting. That's primary. He uses secondary defense to bolster the primary. What's that? He'll alter reality. So you know what he'll do? He'll say, he's got, when I say that repression is failing, that means the anger is coming into the conscious mind, right? He's got to do something with that. So he says, okay, you know what I'll do? I'll admit that I have anger. But I don't hate my parents. It's the teacher I hate. So he's admitted the anger. He's allowed himself to feel the anger, but he switched the object. It's not my parents I hate. It is the teacher I hate. He's displaced the anger toward another situation. And there it's okay for him to vent. You see? But wait a minute. He's altered reality. Because he's not really mad at the teacher. He's, he's really mad at his parents. So the first defense, primary defense is repression where he doesn't want to re- even feel anger. If that's going to break, so automatically it comes out in another direction called displacement. That's one defense mechanism. But that's an alteration of reality. He does not see the teacher anymore, or rather the parents. He says, I'm angry with the teacher. So he's altered reality to a certain extent. But that's okay, because that allows him to feel the anger and, but as long as, I'm not, as long as I don't know that I'm mad at my parents, everything is great, you see? So by altering reality, I allow repression to keep working. But before repression, there are two things. It kicked the anger out of my system. I was not in contact with my anger, and I was not in contact with who I was angry at. Repression fell partially, so I have to admit the anger, but the other repression still works. I don't admit who I'm angry at. This is called... A secondary defense displacement and it bolts his repression but the main idea is to keep these feelings out of conscious awareness now he could have done something else he could have projected and he said it is not I who hate you or angry at you it is you who hate me that's projection he projects his feeling onto somebody else so therefore he admits that there is anger being experienced 
But it's not I who own this anger. He disowns it. It is you who own this anger. You, all people, are against me. So what he's done is he pressed the anger and the object of his anger, his parents. That was falling apart, so he altered the reality. It is not I who am angry, it is you who are angry at me. So that's an alteration of reality. But wait a minute. That's also starting to fall down. Because why are you mad at me? So he's got to justify or rationalize his projection, which is helping his repression in the first place. So he says, we, I, you, I, you're mad at me because you gave me a low grade. Why? Because I did great on this test. It wasn't my fault that I did this bad on this test. I, I didn't study. It doesn't make a difference. So in other words, he's going to justify his anger, or rather he's going to justify your anger toward him so that will help him repress what he's doing in the first place. You begin to see human behavior is incredibly complex. Right? But all of it serves one purpose. To not to consciously aware of these emotions. So first he's going to repress it, which means the ego is going to interfere with its own memory. And if that doesn't work, it means that you just can't repress all of it. Some of it's going to pop out. What he's going to do is he's going to alter reality in some form, some mild form. And the way he alters reality is, for instance, he projects, I am not angry at you, it is you who are angry at me. But in order to do that, he's got to say, well, why should you be angry at me? So he's going to justify something that you did that makes you really angry at me. So you've got three defensive mechanisms that the ego does. You've got repression, first, primary defense. Secondary defense is projection. And in order to bolster that other secondary defense, which bolsters the primary repression in the first place, he throws in rationalization. He's rationalizing why you're angry at him in the first place. You see one on top of the other riding piggyback in order to make sure that this person does not experience his anger and his feelings of in, uh, inferiority and insecurity. This is basically the way it works. I'm trying to show you that the ego has the ability to throw something out of its mind when it's too painful to admit. And it does that by an ego defense called repression, which is the first defense it uses always, and it uses it, it affects the memory. The second defense is called, the secondary defense is some defense which is altering reality. And that will be secondary, and it will try to bolster the repression by keeping the thing out of the mind. Okay? And if that doesn't work, there's another secondary defense. And if that doesn't work, some people may have four defenses lined up just to prop each other up in order to keep the original thought out of the mind. That's how complex behavior is. Now, but what do we learn from this? We learn is that the individual, the self, has the wherewithal to actually do two things. You can conceal truth from yourself, and you can distort truth. You actually can do that. You can conceal truth because of repression, and you can distort truth because of all the other secondary defenses. And by the way, there's over 50 different defensive operations that the human mind can take in order to distort reality. And I am not going to go into those. I just want to give you the feel, the main eye principle, that the mind has the capacity to distort its own functions, memory and then perception of reality, reality testing, and thereby enable itself not to see truth, which is a concealment, and to alter the truth, which again is a distortion of reality. As a result of that, you will then be deceived or deluded about reality. But that's okay, because the reason why you did it is to avoid feeling anxiety or fear. And therefore, if you avoid feeling anxiety and fear, what can you now do? You can go about maintaining life. You can go about being productive. 
because you're not concerned about all the time with anxiety. So this is basically a fundamental understanding of many behaviors that you observe. In other words, that people are, the ego, the self, is able to defend itself. Basically, it can conceal the truth and it can distort the truth, right? It's got that power because the ego has the power to, to interfere with one of its own its functions, memory and reality testing, in order to avoid experiencing anxiety, avert the feeling of fear and all the other terrible feelings and so on. <clears throat> That's a koyach that every individual has. Now, let's go weiter. A person, however, will only resort to this if he cannot do the f- another way. In other words, a person can cope with a situation which is creating a lot of bad feelings in one of two ways. Either he can do this, which is ego defense, in other words, the mind internally will kick all this situation out of its mind, distort and conceal reality, and therefore he can live with himself. But there's another way he can do that. He can do that by what? By uh, inter- interacting with the environment and changing the environment, and there's no more stress. In other words, for instance, let's say you're an adult and somebody insults you. Well, you don't automatically begin making believe he's not insulting you and so on. You can either fight the man, verbally attack him, you can withdraw, or whatever, you can interact, you can problem solve the situation. But the child who is a child cannot problem solve, for one of two reasons. First of all, a four-year-old kid cannot change his situation most of the time, his parental situation. He can't say to his parents, uh, you know, he cannot change that situation. He's much too, he lacks the sophistication to change the situation. He's too young, too weak, and he can't run away from the situation either. Where's he going to go? He's only four years old. The second thing a child, reason why a child cannot problem solve is because even if he's able to change the situation, he doesn't have the communication skills to talk with his parents and saying, what are you people doing to me? You're killing my old sense of self. I mean, he can't talk like that. He doesn't have the command of these skills. So even if he could change the situation, he can't. He's not sophisticated enough, sophisticated enough in these problem-solving skills, communications and so on. Therefore, since the Rebbe Shalom created an individual who starts off as a child first, he had to give him a way of internally removing the threat. If a person was created as an adult, he wouldn't need ego defense because if there was always a threat, he can immediately deal with the environment and remove the threat. But since the reversion created the individual as a child, and a child cannot problem-solve most, most of the time, the reversion had to give him also an internal way of getting away from threatening situations and feelings. And that's called ego defense. So you see that ego defense, if a person is going to be born as a child, was a necessity pusher to keep living. You see? Okay, now, what is the conclusion we've reached? We've reached the conclusion that every human being has the capacity, the wherewithal, to interfere with its own functions, to conceal and distort reality, where mamish is illogical, in order to avert the fears that it's always feeling, and therefore be able to go on and maintain productive life. Every person has a koyach in that direction. Now, psychologists maintain, they only see this rationale for the entire idea of defense in order to make sure you avert anxiety, which is obviously a very important need, and therefore you continue maintaining life. They stop here. If you, however, look at Yiddishkeit, it's far more significant why a child or any human being has the notion called ego defense. 
And this is what we're going to, I'm going to be examining now. The primary purpose, and this is what I want to state, is of an ego defense is not to avert anxiety, which is a very strong need not to keep feeling fear. That's not the primary reason for the ability of a human being to deceive or delude himself. No. You know what the real reason for that is? Because if you could not fool yourself, you could never do a chet. You could never sin. Never. So in other words, even if the Yetzirah, if you recall the weeks before, has the ability to give you all the urges, right? All the urges of power, productivity, uh, pleasure, right? All these different ur urges and potency which I had gone into. And you want these things. You want to have pleasure, to use an example. You could not go against the truth. That's how powerful the truth is. Because, and I had mentioned the entire idea of the Eitzatayv, the truth is so powerful that even though you have urges to go against truth, it stares you in the face and you can't do anything. So in order for the Sahara to operate, the Rabbani Shalom says, I will enable you to operate and I will allow, I will give an individual the capacity to fool himself and distort the truth, then you can come in and make sure your urges work. So a person has the urges, okay, which the Sahara gives him, but the reversion gives the individual the ability to distort and to conceal truth. In other words, it gives the ability of an individual to, con to uh, delude himself. Okay? And therefore, the Yetzirah now can say, give you a need, and now I can hide the truth, and I can say, this is what I want. What does that mean exactly? This is a general idea. Where do we see this in Chazal? Chazal say, Ein odum Elohim It's a famous Chazal. I'll translate. A person does not do any sin unless a spirit of folly, foolishness, this is the translation they give, enters him. Now what does that mean? Does that mean in order to do a chet? It says in Chazal, Ein odum a person does not do a sin unless a person gets a spirit of foolishness. Now what does that mean? person has to become lightheaded, then you have to take four drinks of liquor, you get foolish and lightheaded, and then you do a chet? No. It doesn't mean that, although most people learn Chazal. Chazal amagid amishunadig important yisoyed. That you cannot sin unless you can deceive yourself. Where does it say that? What is Ruach Shtus? What does Shtus mean? Shtus comes from the word Shoyter. Nashkait. What is a Shoyter? A shoyte is a psychotic, an insane person. What is the major idea behind an insane person? An insane person is that individual who as a result of all these feelings, correct? It was so terrible that the person distorts reality and lives in a make-believe world, right? In order to avoid all these terrible feelings of anxiety. That's what a shoyte does. Everybody is a shoyte in some way. Because your use, anybody's use of a defense mechanism resembles a shoyte in quantity rather than quality. We all do the same thing a shaita does. We deceive ourselves in terms of reality. The trouble is that the shaita, the person who's insane, has such incredible amounts of fear that he does it all the time. We do it once in a while, you see. So we differ from an insane person not in, in quality, because we do the same thing he does, and that is deceive ourselves. We differ in quantity. He does it all the time. We do it once in a while. 
So therefore, the essence of a shaita, of a psychotic individual, is he who is employing a defense mechanism, he who is deceiving himself constantly. We do it every once in a while. So Chazal say, if a ruach shtus, if a spirit of that insanity, if a spirit of that deception enters you, then you can be choyte. If it doesn't enter you, you cannot do a chet. Ah, you've got the eight Sahar telling you in pleasures. You can't do it. The truth is so powerful that you're not going to be able to do the chet unless you can deceive yourself, hide the truth, and then you can say, oh, now I want to do the pleasure. That's what Chazal means. Chazal are telling you that the whole reason for the creation of a defense mechanism the whole reason for the creation of the ability of an individual to deceive himself is not to avert anxiety, which is a need. It's in order to make sure that you can fulfill all your needs. Because if you couldn't deceive yourself, you could not fulfill any need which was contrary to Torah, which was contrary to truth. So the rationale of why a person is able to deceive himself is not so he can keep on living, having a productive life, by averting anxiety. The truth is, is that you are able to get what you want. You can hide the truth, which is what, the fact that it is a chet, and you can sit on top of that truth and make believe that it's not a sin, and now you can do your avera, whatever it is, whether it be taiva, any gaiva, it doesn't make a difference. But you can go and do your chet in all the different taivas or whatever. I, it's also on the Torah, it says no, and that's the truth, and, and you perceive that, which I explained in the Yetzirah you know, you can hide this because you've got a tremendous mechanism you can distort the truth you can deceive and delude yourself therefore when you deceive and you delude yourself what are you deceiving and deluding? the truth you're not looking at that truth right? you're pushing it out of your mind by distorting reality or doing one of the different ways the mind can do it now I can go and do whatever I want I can do Machatoim I can do Taivas and so on but in order to do that, you must be able to deceive yourself. That's what Chazal means. A person cannot sin unless the spirit, which means like the me'ain, a kind of same mechanism the shoyte uses, you also must use. Now you can go to a chet. So the true reason or rationale for the, why a person can deceive himself is not to avert anxiety which psychologists think that a need which you have to protect yourself you have a need not to feel threatened okay but it's far more general than that the reason why you're able to deceive yourself is so you can do chatoim you can be morally guilty not just psychologically pained that's the real and Chazal say that openly in that maima what, what do we see in the Torah that the Torah says that I am telling you that you can do a chet because you can deceive yourself. It says in the Torah, mishpat, you shall not incline judgment. Don't incline judgment. It means don't incline judgment because you like that guy better, he's giving you money or bribery, whatever. Don't incline judgment. That's an isa to go and do the wrong mishpat, judgment, if you're a judge. Then it says, don't take bribery. Why? Because bribery is going to blind the eyes of the wise. The salad sadikim, and it's going to distort, pervert, corrupt the words of the righteous. What is the Torah saying? The Torah is saying don't take a bribe to distort justice. We know that because of the Satan Mishpat. Don't incline just judgment in any way because of any reason. 
When it says don't take a bribe, it's talking to an individual who will not be shumai finished, distort justice, even if he takes a bribe. There are people, look at it this way. We can ask ourselves a question. The Torah calls chokham and tzaddik. It says, don't take a bribe because the bribe will blind the eyes of the wise and will corrupt or pervert the words of the righteous. It's referring to two people, the wise and the righteous, right? And by the wise man, it says, it will blind his eyes. And by the righteous, it says, it will corrupt his words or his judgment, correct? Why is the term referring to two different individuals, tzaddik and Tzadik and, and Chochem. And what's the idea of blinding the wise and corrupting the words of the uh, Tzadik? What is a wise man? A wise man is he who perceives reality. That's wisdom. The ability to perceive what is true and pass judgment on that, that's a Chochem. The criteria or the, the essence of a Chochem is his ability to understand truth. That's what's called wisdom. What's the hallmark of a tzaddik? The fact that this individual lives according to justice, midas hadin, that's what a tzaddik is. That his life is in accordance with whatever is just. He will not deviate from justice. So the maile of a chokhum is the ability to perceive truth. And the maile, the virtue of a tzaddik is the fact that he lives only in accordance with what, what is just. So the Torah says, Hezachzor. Do not take a bribery. Because, and who's it addressing itself to? It's not talking about a guy who wants to take the bribe to distort justice because it's a loisata mishpat. That laugh potted him away. It's saying that you are a chokham, right? So you're going to say, I'm going to take this man's bribe and I'm not going to distort my truth. So the terror says, as it's true. A bribe is something that you need and want. Everybody wants a bribe, especially if you're giving a thousand dollars, right? Or ten thousand dollars to distort the judgment, right? So this chokham who's a judge is saying, look, this guy is going to give me a $10,000. You know why he's giving me $10,000? Not because I should distort judgment. He's giving it to me because he respects my status, okay, in consideration that I'm, I'm going to be doing so much work in this case. He's going to deceive himself, first of all, why this person is giving him that, A. He's going to blind himself, evil. The chokum is going to, what, what was the word they used in the defense mechanism? Conceal and distort. What does that sound like? That's blind. When you're blind, you don't see anything. Everything is what? Distorted and concealed. The chokhum, the man who prides himself on his ability to perceive truth, is going to distort and conceal that truth in order to take that bribe. And he thinks he's really passing judgment because the Torah calls him a chokhum. We're not talking about the Russia who's going to do it to pervert justice. We're talking about the chokhum who's going to, who prides himself on his ability to perceive truth judgment and justice and he's going to keep maintaining his posture of chokhmah so it tells the hezach too if you're going to take this bribe if you think that you're going to be able to see truth you have another thing coming you'll never be able to do it why because you're going to fool yourself a in that what the truth is you're going to think this is truth when the truth is something else is truth and you're going to distort or conceal the fact that the reason why you're distorting truth is because you want to keep this bribe because if somebody gives you a bribe, obviously you're obligated to that person. So you're going to fool yourself from the truth of the judgment. And from the reason or the truth, that reason why you're distorting the judgment, is because you want to keep hold of that man's prize. You're going to fool yourself. The Torah is saying that you have the wherewithal to deceive yourself. That's why you shouldn't take shaykhat. 
if you didn't have the wherewithal to deceive yourself, you could take shirkhat. Because you wouldn't distort judgment. But since you can fool yourself, forget it, you cannot take a bribe. Because you'll think you're practicing judgment, justice. The truth is you will deceive yourself and delude yourself by exercising what's called the defensive operations of the ego. It means the need to take money is connected the need, or rather the idea of justice. And they're not compatible. And if you take a bribe, you're going to distort the idea that you're taking this judgment, or rather you're taking this bribe, and you're going to issue a wrong judgment. And you are a tzaddik. The tzaddik is the one who lives, who prides himself that he always lives by justice. So he's going to say, Me? Chas v'shalom. I would never ma'avis adin. You are going to be salib divit tzaddikim. Your dvorim. Your judgment is going to be corrupted. Why? Because you again want that bribe and you're going to deceive yourself. From the Torah we see that Torah is giving recognition that people have the ability to deceive themselves. Therefore, don't take shaykhat because you're going to wind up blinding yourself and therefore giving the wrong judgment or you're going to wind up giving the wrong judgment which is connected to tzitkis in both cases. That's the idea where you see the notion of the capacity of an individual to fool himself in the Torah alayn. So that's the second time we see where the Torah bases a halacha on the fact that your ego can defend. The halacha of Rizikach is based on the idea that you can deceive yourself with the truth, therefore you will distort judgment. That's the halacha is based on evils, on the fact that, evil, that you can blind yourself and distort yourself. There you see the, the idea that the ego can defend itself, not only to avert anxiety, but also to take shaykhad, needs, I want money. We're not talking about anxiety now, we're talking about wish fulfillment, we're talking about needs, ego needs, security, power, wealth, we're talking about the regular needs that everybody wants. The Torah says, don't, because in you exists the mechanism, the device, the wherewithal to distort the truth. And the main you go and do a chet. That's what Loisikach says. This is what we begin to see from the Torah. That a person has the ability to distort truth, conceal truth, thereby deluding himself and denying himself the truth in order that he should be able to do chatoim. Because the Eight Sahara needs help. He can't do it with just the pleasures. He's got to be able to do it where you can fool yourself in the truth and now he can come in and give you the pleasure drive and you, you do your part. He does his part and you do your part, right? He does his part by giving you the pleasure. You do your part by concealing the truth. That's the way the shutfus that you've got with the Yetzirah Sahara. But he can only function the Yetzirah Sahara if he can also do, the, uh, where a person can only do, uh, can, can do also the idea of deception or delusion of what the truth is. Now, from what I say, it would follow, correct, that an individual who has no anxiety, right, also needs a defense mechanism, correct? That it doesn't make any difference if you're a child and you experience anxiety and fears, that you need a defense mechanism in order to avert anxiety. You need it even if you're not a child. Even, even if you're born as an adult, you'd need it in order to do a chet. Who was the only one in history who was born as an adult? Odomeritian. Do we find any kind of ego defense in the idea of other mission? We do. We actually do. 
Because Adamishan also fooled himself, or he could never have eaten from that tree. What was the way he fooled himself? He fooled himself because the Rabbi Shalom says, It's not good that a man should be alone. I'm going to give him a woman, a wife. So the Rabbi Shalom is saying, I'm going to give him a wife. Why? To be a help to him. So after, after of course, the Nochosh beguiles or seduces Chava to eating from the tree. And Chava, of course, doesn't want to remain. She knows that she's going to die. She can't stomach the fact that Adam is going to marry somebody else because she's not around, which is what Chazal say. So therefore she goes and of course and talks Adam into it. Now, then the Rabbanishan comes to Adam Rish and says, Did you eat from that tree? The whole dialogue between him and Adam. And so Adam Rish turns around to Rabbanishan and says, What do you mean? The woman that you gave to be with me, she talked me into it. Oh, she's the one who beguiled me, who talked me into this. So the Ramban says, What is Adam Rish really saying? He's saying, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong here. It's your fault that this Maisachet happened. Why? Because why did you create woman to help me out? I figured if she's offering me this fruit, she's probably trying to help me out. She's doing your will, Adrava. I, the Rabbani Shalom, said, don't eat from this tree. Right? He said, do not eat from this tree. So, but Adamishan is taking the very person that Rabbani Shalom gave him Kava, that he gave it to the help, so he says, he's, he's, what is he doing? He's justifying, he's rationalizing his actions. It is not I who am guilty of a chet, it is you who are guilty of a chet. You are the one who made me err. Why? Because I figured that she is trying to help me out. And therefore, that's why you gave it to me. And I figured all our kavanas is to help me out. And that's why I ate. This is what Ramban said. That is a classic rationalization that an individual uses. Now, if Adam used this after the Chet, we can assume this is what he probably thought of before the Chet. His Chava coming over to him and says, Look at this tree. I mean, it's Mishunadim. Eat it. What was Chava's selling pitch? What was going to tempt Adam to eat this? Veheis and Kilokim, which ties into the entire idea of self-worth, that all people want to have a feeling of self. So the Nochesh says to Chava, and then Chava carries on the message, that if you eat this, the Rebbe knows. You know how God got his powers, the Nochesh says? Because he ate from this tree. And since he knows that, he doesn't want you to eat from this tree, so you'll be as powerful as him. Rashi says that on the, on the Nochesh. So therefore, what was the taiva to Chava? The taiva was, ah, you mean I can be like God? I can be a true divine being that Mamish is omnipotent and omniscient and so on and so forth? I also want that. Because that's a desire of all people. So therefore she ate. Of course, her fears that she, uh, Odom will take another wife, therefore she gives it to Odom. Odom also has that. Chava carried the same line of reasoning to Odom. You can be in Mamash like the Rebbein Obviously, Odom, you had to convince Odom with a murdered seichel. So therefore he ate also for that reason. So therefore we see, so therefore, it's, we can assume that he had the same rationalization. How can I eat from this tree? The Russian said, not. Wait a minute. But she, the Russian created to help me. Mr. Thomas, she's helping me. So he rationalized and justified his own actions. Here's Adam Rishon, who is doing the chet. And how is he able to do the chet? Because he's able to justify and rationalize. After the action is done by blaming the Rabbi Shalom, and we assume that he, he carried the same logic before, the same deception. So therefore we see that 
other musician is practicing or he has the capacity to deceive himself and that's how he was able to do the chet if he could not fool himself he could never have done that chet no matter what Chava said because the truth is that the Roshim said no and there must be profound reasons for that but he was able to justify his actions by saying well Reversion created her to help me, so probably God himself would agree that I can eat from this tree. That was his rationalization. Of course, that was very flimsy, and if you think about it a couple of minutes, you see the whole thing doesn't make sense, but it was enough to grab onto, to do the chet. So therefore, we see that the primary purpose of a defensive mechanism is to do the chet. To do a chet. So we see that in the case of Odomeration. Now, We've reached an important idea, the entire understanding of the ego's ability to defend itself, to interfere with its functions to defend itself by basically concealing and distorting truth, that as a result the individual now deceives and deludes itself into what reality is, and therefore it's able to avert anxiety. But that is as far as psychologists go. We however understand that the, ne- the necessity for the operation of a defense is far more crucial for the whole creation of an Adam and that is the allow him to have that choice, the Bechira, the moral choice so therefore he has the defensive operation in order for him to be able to choose evil or the pleasures or whatever the Yitzhah has to offer by denying truth this is basically the idea and I've shown this is verified by Chazal the whole idea of and the interesting mice of Odomarishan that we see this mamish going on now interestingly enough there was once somebody again to begin illustrating what are the needs of a person okay good we know that a person has the capacity to deceive themselves but what are these needs whereby he can sit and conceal the truth which is the mitzvahs, and he can go and usher in all the needs. What are these needs? It was what's a miser of Chaim, Chaim Soloveitchik, that he was on a train, and somebody, uh, uh, a person who Chaim saw immediately that he was an apicurus, a min, an atheist, came over to him and said, and he was Jewish also, you could see he was Jewish. He said, you know, Rebbe, I have a, you know, whatever, a scholar, whatever, I have, I have a lot of kashas on Yiddishkeit. I have a lot of questions on Yiddishkeit. And, and of course he meant, therefore I am an apicurus. Rav Chaim looked at him and said, you don't have any questions. You have answers. What does Rav Chaim mean? Rav Chaim said, the reason why you're a min is not because you had questions and now you're a min. You want to be a min, period. That's what you want. Why? Because you do not want to believe in a supreme being because if you do, you're going to have to think about what the supreme being wants you to do. And if you think what he wants you to do, it's going to limit your access to pleasure, whatever you want to do. So you're going to try desperately hard not to believe in the Supreme Being. So you're going to hunt around for what? For contradictions. So all those contradictions are not kashas, they're all terutsum. They're all rationalizations and justifications that enable you to continue being an apicurus. This is what Rav Chaim said to him. Again, the same idea. So we see that minus, the idea of minus really is that people who basically are minim don't want to believe in a superior being. They don't want to believe in a rebellion because then it will curtail their activities, it will limit their access to pleasure because you've got to listen to obviously a higher being. I mean, they don't want that. I want to be boss. I don't want any bosses on top of me. And in order to maintain that stature, they are going to look for everything to deny the existence of the rebellion. 
This is the basic idea of what goes on in, in terms of Amin. Of course, he will never say that, me, of course, I, I only want truth. He will deceive himself again because of the ego defense process. He can now justify and rationalize to himself. You see, I have a kasha there. I'm not a min because I want to be a min. I have real legitimate kashas. But the truth is that those legitimate kashas are really turutsum, that justification that keep you in being a min. We are running out of time, so I will continue this year the theme next week.